0: This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors.
1: So we're gonna keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome back. Today we are following our series, Finding Your Place, with author Ashley Hales, and we will be discussing her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Ashley holds her Ph.D. in English from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, and she and her husband, Bryce, co host the Cartographers podcast and are the co-founders of the Willowbray Institute, a think tank researching the intersection of Christianity and the common good in America. They have four kids and live in San Luis Obispo, California. Welcome, Ashley. Oh, I'm so honored to be with you guys. Thanks.
0: Well, first of all, the book is beautifully written. It's deep, convicting, and inviting. So thank you so much for writing it. In the book, you talk about how you moved from Salt Lake City to the suburbs of San Luis Obispo, also known as Slow. So tell us the story behind why you wrote this book in the first place.
2: Sure. Actually, the book was occasioned on another move to California down in Orange County. Regardless, we were excited. We had moved from Salt Lake City. My husband had Done campus ministry for six years. We have some dear, dear friends who moved with us to Southern California, to Orange County. And we kind of thought, like, we are going to provide the gospel in a nuanced, beautiful, neighborly way, and everyone's going to jump at it. (laughs) And that's never always the case, right? Like, we like (laughs) our comfort. We like so many different things more than really showing up and being real in each other's lives. So, It was a little bit of a culture shock, even though I'd grown up in that area, coming back with children and seeing that places really do form our lives and how sometimes those are really beautiful things, the way that that brings us to the gospel. And other times, places really form us away from the goodness of Jesus and His story.
1: Well, right from the beginning, you say there's kind of a narrative out there that tells us if we really loved God— we'd move somewhere more spiritual than the suburbs. And they're kind of demeaned in a way when we think about them, that it's kind of a cop-out to live in the land of much. And yet, you point out in your book that more than 50% of Americans do live in the suburbs, and many of us want to live out our faith in a faithful way. So how do you speak back to that narrative to those of us who might feel kind of guilty that we sold out to the suburbs? (laughs) For
2: sure. I think part of anything right is just naming that because i think if we don't begin to name it we can act in really weird ways it's going to come out sideways in some way shape or form and so to just name this is a little bit awkward given the injunction in scripture and to be amongst the poor but also firmly knowing that god has placed all of us in different places and in different stations of life and different kind of cultures all around the world to be Really, the mouthpiece of Jesus and the hands and feet of Jesus. And so it was a real struggle for me because I would see my friends like going overseas or on mission trips or serving in their time off or even moving to inner cities. And I felt like, does God really have a place for me here? Is he really good here? And it felt like doing something harder sometimes would be actually easier more clear about calling and vocation and what does it look like to love Jesus and our neighbors than in an area where there's a Starbucks on every corner and you're just talking to the fellow soccer moms. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate how you take us back to the story of how suburbs began. And you talk about how after World War II, when the upper middle class residents began retreating to these country manor houses away from the city, there was a promise of the good life for things like safety and beauty and comfort and ease. But then as these places grew wider and richer, it became known as white flight because of the lack of racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic diversity. So I'm curious for you, why was it important for you to include this piece of our history for helping us understand the story behind the places that many of us live here in the suburbs?
2: I think we can just try to live kind of unplaced and unhistorical lives often, right? Where we think, oh, this is just how it is. And either whether we don't know the history of our own actual places, we don't know even where our street names come from. Often it's just from a developer who says like those two words together sound nice. They're very uncreative
1: usually. Yeah, <laughs>
2: they are, I'm like, really? They you can't do better than that. <laughs> right. I know. Or like they're awkward even, but not to go on a tangent on street names, but many places, they have a history to them and they are embedded in the street names. And if we take some time to begin to actually uncover the history of our place, I think it complicates the narrative. And I think it helpfully complicates the narrative because it says that we are not the first people here. And God has cared for this place for a long time. And there has been hopefully churches over generations and generations. And then that there's also been probably patterns of systemic sin and neglect in our places too. And so it's not to say that we are personally responsible for that, but that we are inheritors of that. And so we have the question of what do we do with that, whether it's some various forms of privilege, whether it's just the inability, our ability to kind of step back that we don't have to involve ourselves in some of the discussions that many folks are having. We need to begin, I think, to name those and to recognize those, to say that this is not the way, this life where we can actually escape difficult circumstances or challenges, or we can choose to only congregate with people who think and look and shop the same way as us, is something that doesn't usually move us towards resilience in the life of discipleship. It moves us rather towards kind of this homogeneity and comfort, which really doesn't reflect the multifaceted way that the kingdom of God is talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance.
1: We thought about the Sermon on the Mount a lot as we read your book. And I appreciated that you didn't shy away from that. And even sharing, having been in the process of moving away from the city, you shared a lot about what you felt like you were losing, that you were leaving this cultural hub of diversity with great restaurants and immigrants and sustainability and depth and nuance. And then I had to kind of laugh and chuckle how you were honest about how you initially kind of bristled and turned your nose up towards the idea of some of the stereotypes you had for heading into the suburbs, all the superficiality and how we can be image obsessed because of the affluence. And specifically, you you said you had this idea that people in the suburbs were unconcerned with real problems. I was (laughs) like, well, yeah, that is for sure a stereotype. And so (laughs) I want to hear like, how have you grown to love your neighbors where you live when, okay, maybe some of those stereotypes weren't, always true but maybe some of them even were yeah it was helpful to
2: be daily confronted with my own judgmentalism i think about certain groups of people and we all have different proclivities right we can be compassionate towards other certain groups that we can fight alongside them and we have other times where we can just easily with broad brush strokes take out whole groups of people because we don't actually know their stories and so for us really a lot of the work of repentance was the work of hospitality. And so what that meant was involving ourselves in the lives of our actual neighbors, um, knowing their names, finding out their stories. No matter how comfortable we are, of course, none of us is immune to suffering. And so whether it was the loss of relationships, whether it was an elderly mother or father going through dementia, whether it was just estrangement from one's adult children. There were so many things that reminded me that we are really not strangers to suffering, no matter how much we think we can maybe buy our way out of it. And so coming alongside folks and just hearing their stories and hearing and walking with women in my neighborhood who also felt calls to depth of discipleship and wanted to talk about good books and big ideas, those were sustaining uh, friendships as well.
0: So you say that places form our loves, and that's because of the local liturgies we participate in, the daily habits which shape our hearts. You just talked about hospitality as a way that helped you break through some of those stereotypes, but then there's also some other liturgies that can form us or malform us in the suburbs and mention things like the Target run even or right. the luxury yep. drinking of nice coffee. We love nice coffee. So we are in some ways formed. by that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or the privilege of driving a certain SUV or minivan. How do those things malform us as we are living in these places?
2: I think the ubiquity of it all is part of it. Everyone's enjoying the coffee. Everyone has the minivan or the fancy SUV. Everyone, it, well, it feels like And that's, of course, not the case. But when it feels like this is the world in which we live, it's hard to get some kind of purchase and find a place outside of those things. And so you feel like you have to have that to be a part of a place. And that's a lie. But if you think particularly about just the fact that we have cars so much all around America, that we are car-based really since the 50s, and the ways in which if you just think, how does that form us? Well, we our oldest just recently turned 16 and we bought a very used third car. But for a while there, he was biking around town or he would, of course, get a ride with us. And you think about the ways in which our children are formed to think, well, I have to get from A to B. And so my mom can obviously take me there or my dad, when he has a moment, can take me there. And we have this sense that if I need to get somewhere, which is great to say like our parents are available and care for our children, but There's this kind of sense that I can get from one point from A to B by simply asking someone and it will all magically happen for me. And when I am in that car, I can pick if I have my seat heater on, I can pick the air conditioning (laughs) level. I can pick my music on Spotify. I don't even have to listen to the radio and listen through commercials. And there's so many things in which we've created a bubble for ourselves in a car where we get to choose all of these sorts of things and everyone else is either a poor driver or slowing us down, whatever it is that we become kind of little mini kings and queens, right? We become the king of the universe instead of Jesus. And to realize it's great to have a car. It's amazing, right? It gets us from A to B and we can get to work and all of these things. But to also realize we need to at least be paying attention to the ways in which those small habits can become kind of the fabric of our lives that if we don't get a little bit of time to, huh, I wonder what this is really doing to me that can really be detrimental to our souls.
0: Yeah, we can get pulled into this mirage that we can be self-sufficient, that we are in control. Like you said, we're little kings and queens driving around and running our lives because we might have the ability to do that in some ways, but that's not how we're meant to live.
1: And who needs their neighbors when you've got your palace? That's the odyssey that just kind of drives you around. It's like, no, we need. To remember that we are people, we are creatures that have needs, and yeah, if you have DoorDash, you don't even need to you don't <laughs> even need to drive your little
2: palace on wheels, right? You can just yeah. bring me my candy bar you
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> or my coffee, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and you communicate, Ashley, with such grace too. I mean, you do a great job of pointing out that some of these desires and hungers, as you call them, are they're good longings to enjoy our lives and work and rest and keep our families safe and live in these cohesive communities. But it's when they go sideways and become idols in our lives that we become, like you say, corrupted by some of these consumerism and, and others that you mentioned. So we'd love to hear you speak to those, the consumerism, individualism, busyness, safety. What would you say to us that was especially convicting to you. And I would love to hear, were there adjustments that you had to make in your own life as you were writing it? Because I was reading your words and I was very much convicted throughout each of the idols. But yeah, what was it like for you writing those chapters? Yeah, I tend to write in process rather than
2: I am the guru who's figured it all out. So it is me, as you say, wrestling with these issues and realizing I am a fellow pilgrim. As we think about the various idols of suburbia and just maybe broadly affluent America, we think about the consumerism promises that we can purchase our way out of trouble, that if we have enough resources, money, time, etc. And if I use those resources, then I'll be able to keep myself safe or keep my family safe. If you think about busyness, a lot of that is really around the issue of if I keep working, then I will be seen, known, and loved. If I keep moving, then I will kind of like a machine be valued. If we think about individualism, that, of course, is wider than America. It's wider than the suburbs. But the sense that I get to decide my own fate, that I am the master of my domain and that it's really up to me to make myself happy. And so if these wider institutions like the family or marriage or place or nation or what whatever it is, um, the church don't make me happy, then I get to opt out of that, right? That's also a kind of a consumer way of thinking about institutions. And In my second book, A Spacious Life, actually deals, I think, entirely with some of those concerns as well about this misconstrued view of freedom. And so... If this is the world in which we live, what do we do about that, right? Do we never buy anything again? Do we embed ourselves in some communist like community where we're living off the land? Do I just like quit my job? And some of us are kind of tempted towards that all or nothing thinking. Like that would just be easier, right? Is just to totally shut our door on all of these idols that I'm doing the right thing. But I think the way of the gospel and the way Jesus always interacted with folks is. He would be able to see their heart motivations, right? And to the man who, the rich young ruler, and he says, and he doesn't say this to everybody, but he says it to him, like, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he goes away sad because he has great riches. But before we get to that kind of injunction of what to do, Jesus looks at him and he has compassion on him and he loves him. And so the request to like, for this particular person to give it away is based on Jesus's compassion and his seeing and the sense that true freedom was that he's noticing this man is totally enslaved by his wealth and his power. And so what he needs freedom from are those things. And I think we have to start there, that Jesus sees us and he has great compassion on us. So when we find ourselves like, I'm going back to Target, just to get like the dopamine hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or thinking, if I just had this vacation, then my life, I would experience real rest. And these are things that I have dealt with this week. So I, <laughs> I, I, I'm i not saying I've, I've arrived at all. But as we consider those things, to remember that we have the kind gaze of Jesus in the midst of those moments. And to then, as you're saying there, Elizabeth, to also say, there is a real good hunger in there, right? We have a A hunger for community, a hunger to be known and seen and loved, a hunger to do good work in the world, and to bring those to Jesus. So what I tried to do, too, in the book at the end of most chapters is there's some reflection questions and some practices, counter-liturgies, things to help reorient us as we do something different. So I would say, yes, I was definitely convicted and have been still (laughs) about these (laughs) these things. And those small sorts of daily liturgies, those daily practices are the things that remind me, you know, going for a walk, experiencing nature, experiencing sunshine, experiencing the gift of my church community. Those are things that reorient me to my place rather than when it's like, ooh, this shiny object whether that's something to purchase or, you know, this shiny object of a new stage of life or a new place or a new house, whatever that shiny object might be, just to bring that to a God who loves us.
1: And I was just encouraged to know there's a line where you say, what captures my imagination more, my countertops or the kingdom of God? (laughs) And so if we relate to that in a way, we're in good company, and yet we don't have to stay there. In that shameful place, we can practice some of these very simple counter-liturgies and trust that God in His compassion is moving toward us and wants better and can use even very small habits that can reform us over time. So I found a lot of encouragement.
0: Yeah. What have been some of those counter-liturgies that you've—you mentioned some there at the end. I didn't know if there were any others that you engaged in, especially living in the suburbs that you found helpful
2: I think for me, just the way I'm wired, I can theorize and imagine and go down like crazy rabbit trails of thought or thinking or feeling. And so for me, one thing that's helpful is to get in my body. And so to either bring someone along with me for a walk or to have kind of a walking prayer practice is always helpful. It helps me remember and actually see my place and the actual people there. So I'm not imagining what it is that where I live and characterizing things with broad brushstrokes. So that's one practice that I've always found extremely helpful, no matter where I've lived. And the other thing too, Elizabeth, as you were saying Am I more captured right by the countertops (laughs) or Mm -hmm. the kingdom of God is, okay, you can also use that as an opportunity to pray, right? So when I start freaking out about my countertops is can I listen to scripture? Um, Can I repeat a Bible verse? Can I put a Bible verse right by the sink as I'm doing the dishes so I'm not frustrated that I'm cleaning the grout? You know, whatever it is (laughs) to take every thought captive in really practical ways. Those are just a few things. And I think we also think, This can easily turn into a self-improvement project that if I work harder at all of these things, then I'll be okay. But to realize, one, Jesus has ultimately done everything for us. And part of this is just learning to be conformed into his image. And it also looks like that happens with other people too, right? We can't do all this on our own.
0: Yeah, guilt and shame will never get us out of valuing (laughs) our countertops more than the kingdom of God, right? So, well,
1: and we don't love our countertops. (laughs) I'll just say right here, they're brown and they're ugly. So, (laughs) this is hitting home. (laughs) It does. And I love that you call us okay, so we see these idols, but then you call us and invite us into this life of repentance. God does, but through you in your book and a life of repentance and belovedness. So remind us what repentance means, first of all, and what it looks like to practically live those lives of repentance and belovedness where we live.
2: I think we can think of repentance like we were saying with a lot of of that guilt and shame that you were mentioning, Chris, and kind of like we're getting brownie points with God if we repent, that we've somehow, this is kind of the get out of jail card towards our shame but really repentance is, it's a turning, right? It's an ultimately, it was a military term that you would just, you're going one way and you repent and you turn around and you go march the other way, which is just helpful to think it's an action, right? And it's also not like loaded with all of these emotions. When you think about where the word comes from, it's not like, oh, I just feel so bad that I was going right. Now I need to go left. And so there's a freedom there, I think. And like, repentance is actually, the Bible talks about, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so it's as we see God's kindness, his compassion, if you think back to Jesus with the rich young ruler there, that he desires good things for us. And so repentance is just an acknowledgement of what is true and good and right. And it's a turning, and it doesn't have to be loaded with so much that we maybe tend to self berate ourselves in the process. But Repentance then frees us to say what God says is true, both that we are sinners and that Jesus has paid the cost for our sin. And so we have the freedom to do something different. And that encourages us then, as we repent, to really put ourselves into a place of reminding ourselves and being reminded by the word of God and in community that we are actually God's beloved child. And those listeners who are parents, or even if you've been an aunt or an uncle, right, you've have seen this look of sheer safety on the eyes of an infant being held by his or her parent. If you have this little bitty baby and you think, wow, they can do nothing wrong. They're entirely perfect. And there is this gaze of love that the kid has not done anything, right? The kid has not scored a goal in soccer. The kid has not gotten an A on a test. All the kid does is cries out for hunger and soils its diapers (laughs) (laughs) and sleeps A very small amount. And yet, a parent looks at that child and says, You're mine. I take such great delight in you because you are mine. And to remind ourselves again and again that God looks at his children the same way, better than that, even, and perfectly. And so, as we can root ourselves in that story, then we are also quicker to repent. We don't have to feel like we have to defend ourselves or explain away our sin. Or the ways in which we've gotten it wrong, that we have a father who comes down to care for his children. And so we, with that gaze of love, are free to like live a lot more lightly and loosely than trying to like earn our keep, which is more of the habit of the orphan that feels like I need to do these sorts of things to be loved.
0: I think some of us picture kind of engaging in that process, like we're sitting with our Bible, with our cup of coffee, but you talk about walking a lot, which I thought was really cool. How does walking help you engage in this act of repentance and experiencing belovedness?
2: Yeah. Well, like I said, these sorts of walking prayers have been important ways for me to not only see my place, but to see my place in God's story. And we can think of repentance, you know, as I said, as a turning. And so if we Actually, walk, we begin to see our place. We begin to see the ways in which we are recipients to common grace, and that there are trees and sunshine and birds. And it begins to take us out of ourselves and our kind of myopic, inward turning sense of at least how I can be. I can just fixate on something. So we begin to like take our eyes out of that. And that I think is really helpful. I think often, even the act of repentance can feel very inward and myopic, but if we can move our bodies, if we can see the belovedness that God has sustained creation, that reminds us that we are part of that story too.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Take a walk. Take a walk. Oh, (laughs) oh, I love it. I'm a walker too. So that I was like, I can do this. (laughs) I can walk. (laughs) Right. And it's not too onerous. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like you don't have to run.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No running, just walking. So in the last third of your book, you provide these expanded counter liturgies, which Again, if we're approaching them from a state of belovedness, we are experiencing the compassion of Jesus, I think some of these things can have a real effect on our hearts and begin to shape our loves and point us back to God away from some of these other idols we've talked about. And hospitality, you mentioned earlier, is one that really stood out to us. We talk about hospitality a lot. We we also talk a lot about like the cultural definition of hospitality versus a biblical definition. And I really liked how you brought the cross into the discussion on hospitality. And I thought that it really continued to fill out this biblical definition of what it means to be hospitable. So, what does the cross have to teach us about hospitality?
2: Yeah. Thank you. I liked writing that section. It was a fun, like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Um, it's always nice when things line up. The cross, if we think of hospitality against entertaining, And then we think of, okay, if hospitality is really making room, and I love that idea of really making room for another person, really being present with another person, that takes away some of the like three course, five course meal sorts of connotations that we often have. So if we think of hospitality as making room, how then is the cross making room? How is it an act of hospitality? And so part of what's required for hospitality is that you're actually physically present. It's really hard to be hospitable virtually. I mean, we're trying right now, but <laughs> but nevertheless, being present with another person really matters. And so if we think about this, the cross is pretty small, right? It's one person in one place at one time. It's a few nails <laughs> and a few pieces of wood. And yet in that small moment, which is actually the whole meaning of the universe, that On the cross that Jesus is doing for us and being present to us, in ways that sees all of the brokenness of the entire cosmos and is taking it on Himself, and it shows us then too that hospitality and the cross is a place where, like very ordinary elements, come together, and that that making room and not to make light of Jesus's crucifixion, that there's always a brokenness, there's always a cost to making room for other people. And of course, Jesus bears the ultimate cost on the cross of the alienation of God the Father, of our sin, our shame, of the broken systems in the world. And he bears it in his own body. And I think that's helpful to remember because we can often think of hospitality making room and just maybe be excited about the possibilities of that. And look, I'm going to be an instrument of God's hospitality in the world. But to also say that there is a cost to that. There's a cost to meeting other people with ourselves. And so Jesus shows us, and he always goes first, right? That he meets us with himself, and that in his sacrifice, in his death on the cross, that he makes room for redemption. He makes room for the possibility of living faithfully in our places. He makes room for the entire reimagination and restoration of the entire world. And so obviously, we can't do that. <laughs> in our homes, you know, but it does give us an example of if the cross is where Jesus shows up, he offers himself. It's very mundane. It's very average. It happened on an actual moment in time in history. Then we too, who have the benefits of
1: Christ's cross
2: can show up in mundane, everyday ways to meet people where they're at and to be welcomers.
1: Yeah. It's not the romanticized, commercialized glamorized version that we get in our culture, like you said, of entertaining. It's a better story. And it's a story that's worthy of giving our lives to, of welcoming the stranger, which are sometimes our next door neighbors. And you say specifically, I love this quote, you say, hospitality helps us and our neighbors slow down and be human again. We're so busy doing so many things, we become human doings. But in hospitality, we eat, we talk, We shake hands or give a hug to welcome. We laugh and maybe we cry. How have you seen some of those practical expressions made alive in your own life with your neighbors? Yeah, I think a lot
2: of that has looked like going on those regular walks, right? You begin to notice who are my neighbors, as you're saying that some of them could be strangers, and so some of that often looks like embracing awkward conversations. Like, I know you. we introduced ourselves when we moved in a few years ago, but I totally forget your name. And now we just wave politely and I would like to get to know you. Like, so you just kind of embrace the awkward and you're actually making people human to have a name and not just be this vague neighbor personality. So I think that is always a good first step and a reminder that it's okay. You can look silly and awkward to try to begin to welcome people. and so. For us, a lot of that has looked like just inviting people into our home. We've had bigger homes and smaller homes in the past, and it really hasn't been a problem. People just feel so excited to actually eat a home-cooked meal or have a piece of cake, even a cup of tea. And it doesn't have to be fancy at all, but people feel welcomed, and college students especially, like to have a home-cooked meal and to be in the chaos of a family has felt comforting to folks. And so to realize when I take my eyes off myself and all the flaws I might see about my own home or the flaws of myself and the ways I don't show up properly or I've forgotten people's name, just to hold ourselves loosely and to hold the gospel and Jesus highly, I think helps us begin to be more hospitable so we can be present to another person rather than feeling like we need to dance around in circles and make sure everybody's happy but that takes practice. And it means sometimes you're going to have really awkward conversations and dinners and meals with people, which we have. And sometimes you're going to really connect. And so I think it's just like, it's fine. Just embrace the awkward. Jesus loves you no matter what. And you can always order pizza if things burn (laughs) and it's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, that's good. Even in, as you're talking about being hospitable and even in that example of walking up to a neighbor and saying, Hey, we've lived next door, hi, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, there is a vulnerability to that. And that's one of the counter-liturgies that you say as well, is being vulnerable has the opportunity to bring about new life and new relationships, but it's risky, right? We can find ourselves wondering, is that vulnerability worth the risk? And so what would you say to those of us who are resistant (laughs) to the risks of vulnerability with our neighbors?
2: If we think that our neighbors really do have something to teach us, so it's not just, I'm going to go be neighborly because my mission is like to convert my neighborhood, but rather God calls us to be a good neighbor. And so that means paying attention. That means making room. That means going out of our way to see hurting people like the good Samaritan and not walking past things that are hard to see or to comprehend because we're so busy and important. And so if our attitude then is not like, it's up to me to go save the neighborhood, but rather I have been saved by Jesus. And so I can't fail. Cause I think a lot of times our vulnerability is linked to, we don't think we're going to do it right or good enough, or we're going to make a mistake or we're scared of failing in various ways. And so we push off vulnerability and, the invitation to vulnerability is probably an invitation to failure and to realize that all of our ultimate failures are covered by the blood of Jesus. And so it's okay. It's okay for me to fail, which is really hard for me as I was going to be the straight A student. So failure can really be a gift and our vulnerability is a gift to other people because it shows that we're present as well, right? That if we're able to let our guard down, our vulnerability welcomes someone else's vulnerability. And I think it was Brene Brown, the sociologist who was talking about vulnerability is the first thing we look for in other people, but the last thing we're often willing to give ourselves. And it's a helpful thing to say that, which we all know, right? If you are welcomed and you experience someone's vulnerability, you actually lean in. So to just remind yourself that that's my reaction is to lean in. And so let me just practice and it's okay to
1: feel. I love that. So you conclude your book really with a calling to what you call shalom, what the Bible calls shalom, the wholeness of the suburbs, seeking that. And I find myself imagining what it would look like if God's kingdom were increasingly to come and his shalom would increasingly come in our neighborhood. And I personally imagine lonely and isolated neighbors being brought into community and having connection. And I think about families beginning to... Follow Jesus and learning to be merciful and peacemaking and being satisfied by doing the good works they were created for. What comes to mind when you think about God's kingdom coming more and more in his shalom and flourishing coming to your neighborhood?
2: Sometimes I like to think about shalom and connection and wholeness. And I actually have this as kind of the ending of my second book. This kind of almost like this crazy street party (laughs) right where i like it like there's no cars and there's tables with white linen tablecloths in the middle of the street and there's bands on porches playing and every it's like the best potluck with really good food (laughs) that everyone's showing up for and that there's art and beauty and mutuality that's kind of my modern version of like the supper of the lamb, I think, a little bit. That, mm-hmm. The marriage like feast it. of the lamb that we'll all be invited into. <laughs> so, and the sense that everybody's welcome and, you know, people are all doing their own thing, but um, are all kind of around together in this joyful throng full of good food and good drink. And that's probably unlikely to happen in my little suburban track home neighborhood. Um, but, you know, <laughs> like, what are some steps towards that? We have some friends in Denver and they've started like a wine Wednesdays with their neighbors where they get together every Wednesday for a few months and they talk about wine and and it could be anything, but that was a way to consciously bring people together. It was a set amount of time too. So it wasn't like you have to do this forever and there was a reason to gather. And so I think there's things like that that you can do or book clubs, In one of my old neighborhoods during Halloween, people would leave little boo baskets and you'd like, it was like all these little goodies and you'd like ding dong ditch someone, you know? And so it was just a way to create neighborliness that I think with a little bit of creativity or a little Pinterest search, you could begin to kind of change the tenor of your neighborhood towards some of that mutuality and freedom and camaraderie that begin to be then hopefully places where you can increase vulnerability and then you can then increase your conversations about why you are doing this? Because I think Jesus loves this place too.
0: That's great. It's a beautiful picture. Well, Ashley, in your writing, you bring a high challenge for those of us living in the suburbs and you don't shy away from the hard things. But with that, you bring high grace and vulnerability. And because of that, your voice is one that I think will continue to be an important one to listen to moving forward. So I would encourage everyone to follow her podcast, The Cartographers, buy her books, Finding Holy in the Suburbs and The Spacious Life. So Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you, Ashley.
2: You're welcome. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend.